Hosea chapter 12. We are nearing the end of this, this, great, uh, this great prophecy that we've been studying now. Uh, I'm going to do what I haven't done, I don't think, except for maybe one chapter, but I'm going to do all of chapter 12 tonight. You know, uh, Normally, I, I kind of introduce each chapter with, with some introduction plus a lot of stuff, but what we're finding now is just a, a lot of good repetition. You know, repetition being, you know, how, how God teaches us, you know, through the, through the, um, through the word of God, you know, the, the, the issue of repetition is, is one of our, of our better teachers. But he, but he focuses his attention now toward the end here, not only on, on his love for Israel, because he's wanting to make it clear that he's not going to destroy them. He's not going to destroy them forever. I mean, they're, they're going to be punished for the disobedience, the, uh, the uh, rejection, the, uh, uh, the rebelliousness, uh, and especially the idolatry. That would be, of course, this prophecy being focused upon the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes that went north, uh, separated from the, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, who were in the south. And we've talked about how the prophecy of Hosea has been directed primarily to, to the north, but he mentions Judah a couple of times in the in the uh, in the prophecy itself to make sure that we realize they're okay for a little while longer, but not a, but but not forever because they're going to have their time uh, to be judged as well. And we see that at the end of this last chapter where we ended last time. And I'll bring it up in the last three verses going into chapter 12. But the name Ephraim, as we've seen it, or Ephraim, uh, has always been a designation for the northern kingdoms because uh, the tribe of Ephraim was the largest of, of all the northern kingdom of, of all the, the northern tribes. And so... Uh, uh, the Lord speaks to them at, in, in, in that way as the, the most influential tribe in, in, in a sense as well. So he begins in verse 1, and I'll, we'll see how it ties together with the last three verses in just a moment. But let's just begin reading the text. Ephraim feedeth on wind and followeth after the east wind. He daily increaseth lies and desolation. And they do make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried into Egypt. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord hath also a controversy with Judah, or a contention, as it were, with Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. So you'll notice that uh, the Lord is also going to have to deal with Judah at some point after this. Uh, according to his doings will he recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial. And therefore turn thou to thy God. Keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God. Continually. 
So we saw the mention of Jacob there in verse 2, and we'll uh, come back to deal with that particular mention. So there's one thing then, there's one thing that the Lord requires of every human being, and that's repentance. It's required of every human being. Why? Because all have sinned. The Bible is very clear that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone born into this world is a sinner. And so the Lord requires of every person, of every human being, repentance. He demands that we turn away from sin, which can only be classified as the dark and corruptible behavior of this world, a behavior that will lead both to physical and eternal death. Is it a little dark in here? Can we switch those lights? Switch, switch it uh, the other way. Okay, well, leave them on. So I can see everybody doing this. Okay, that, that's squinting, and squinting's not good for you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> So the Lord demands that we turn away from sin. And as I said, it's classified as the dark and corruptible behavior of this world. Throughout all of scripture, we see that the world is just wrapped up in, in, in sin, in terrible and corruptible living, a behavior that will lead, as I said, to physical and eternal death. Now, once we turn away from sin, Remember this, it sounds obvious, but once we turn from sin, we must turn to the Lord. Once we turn from sin, we turn to the Lord. We've oftentimes described it as turning 180 degrees, which means taking a big U-turn and going in the totally opposite direction from where we were headed. And if we are walking in one direction then we must completely turn around and walk toward the one true and living God. And walking toward the Lord means that we believe him, that we believe in him, and that we live righteously as he has commanded us in his holy word. So understand that about repentance. When we turn from our wicked ways, when we turn from the direction that we've been going, we are now turning toward the Lord, and now we are turning toward him to believe him all right, we, we believe him. In other words, we believe his truth. We believe that this is the word of God and, and, and that we can stand upon it because it, 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 because it is uh, inerrant. There's nothing that, that can lead us astray if we stay in his word and do it right. We believe in him because of the things that he has done. The things that he has said, the things that he has done, the promises that he's made, we can believe in God each and every day of our lives. We can believe in his son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because he has fulfilled every scripture that pertained to his first coming, and he is fulfilling every scripture on the way to his second coming that we see in the word. So there again, that's why we can believe him, believe in him, and then we are to live righteously. We are to obey the Lord. We are to live as he has commanded us, as, as his word has taught us. So it is a strong message of repentance then that we've been seeing that God has given to the prophet Hosea and he has been preaching this message in this chapter to the northern kingdom of Israel. But as we shall see, uh, 
The message here in chapter 12 is initially given to the southern kingdom of Judah. And obviously the ten-tribe nation of Israel and the two-tribe nation of Judah had a common heritage. They both descended from Jacob. Because we know, as we'll see in just a moment, that Jacob was, uh, uh, had his name changed to Israel. So Jacob, being the father of the twelve tribes of Israel, links then all of the, ten, all of the tribes together. But before we get into that message of repentance, we, we need to link the last verse of chapter 11 to the first verse of chapter 12. So the Lord, in expressing his love for Israel, because that's what we were dealing with in the, in the last chapter, the Lord indicated that he would not execute the fierceness of his wrath upon them. For if he had, if God had executed the fierceness of his wrath upon his own people, they would have been blotted out forever. Israel may have been lost among the nations, but they were never lost to God. And this is something that people need to understand in, in the 21st century. Because there's a lot of people who, who think that God has forsaken Israel now because they have completely gone off the grid with God. And that they don't, you know, that they're not part of, of, of any promise that God has ever made to them. But obviously, if that's the case, then they don't understand how God makes promises. And they don't understand how God made a covenant with Israel that they did not have anything to do with. It was that unilateral covenant that he made with Abraham. And we've talked about that covenant with Abraham and then the covenant that is given to Israel that is uh, conditional. But the one that was given to Abraham was unconditional. God kept both sides of that covenant. God doesn't take it back. He's not an Indian giver. <clears throat> as, as, as I, I suppose some people think that's what God is. Because today there are those people who have forsaken themselves. They themselves have forsaken Israel. They say that the Israel of the land that is there today in the state of Israel, the modern state of Israel that, that we saw uh, resurrected in, in 1948, is not really the Israel that God cares about. Now the, the, the Israel that God cares about is a spiritual Israel that the church represents. But all we need to do is read Romans chapters 9 through 11 to know that Paul has been very clear about the fact that God still loves Israel, that God still will restore Israel, that God will one day save Israel. And he's not talking about a spiritualized Israel. He is talking about his own people. So we, we have to understand this in, in, in light of, of all the prophecies that we find in the scriptures. If God had, and this is what he's saying in chapter 11, if I had executed my fierceness upon my own people, they'd be blotted out forever. And so they're not lost to God. In fact, God knows where every Jew is. Uh, there's some in this room too. And he knows you're here. <laughs> he knows where they are. They're not lost. There used to be these uh, ministries, you know, that uh, there was one called the Worldwide Church of God, and they used to uh, teach an Anglo-Israelism type of a message where, you know, the, 
that the, the, lost, the, the lost tribes are lost, <laughs> you know, the, the 10 lost tribes are lost, you know, but they're being found now and people, you know, like in, uh, well, they, they've kind of uh, corrupted the, even the English language to make a point that, that uh, you know, they're, they're, they're lost except to them, you know, they, they know where, every, uh, you know, no, God knows where his people are. Let, let's just understand that. God knows where his people are. So what he did now here is call Assyria an enemy of Israel to plunder Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and they did quite a, a thorough job. But the Lord didn't enter the city. And again, this is part of what we learned last time. The Lord doesn't enter the city, and hence he didn't make an utter end of it as he had Sodom. We know that God destroyed Sodom. But he did not completely destroy Samaria. And he did not completely destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. So in effect, God was waiting outside. How do we know this? By this one little phrase that we saw last week. We didn't mention it last time because of time. But it's that little phrase, the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. Verse 9 of, of chapter 11. The Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. It's mentioned a couple of times in the scriptures, I believe in the book of Isaiah. But the idea of that is that the, the Holy One of Israel is in the midst of thee means that he is near to thee. And he's always been near to his people. Even when they have forsaken him and walked away, he's always near to them. Even when he himself has had to renounce them for their sin. And withdrawn himself from them. The withdrawing of God has, has allowed them for certain uh, consequences to come upon his people for the sake of judgment and for the sake of, of, uh, of correction, but not for the sake of destroying them. So the, again, this is why it, it, this is important for us to understand that he's there to watch over their wanderings and preserve them from total assimilation and extermination. They could have been exterminated. Folks, it was very possible for all the Jewish people to have been exterminated in the 30s during the Holocaust. Six million Jews were exterminated. Nearly seven million. And it could have been very possible that the tide changed in the in the war. But God made sure that they didn't. And it was out of that near destruction that the nation of Israel would rise again. So their long wandering among the nations would not be completely fruitless and would not be unproductive. Let's go back to chapter 11 verses 10 through 12 as we lead ourselves into chapter 12. Hosea 11 verse 10. They shall walk after the Lord. Already a promise that they're going to be rescued. A promise that they're going to be delivered from their captivity. They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. And when he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. And I talked about that last week. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the land of Assyria. Again, two of the nations that they wanted to make treaties with for their sake, for their own sakes, and God did not want that to happen. We'll see that in a moment. And he says, And I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord, 
Ephraim compasseth me about with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. Let's pick up right here, because now Ephraim is mentioned, he compasseth me about with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah yet ruleth with God and is faithful with the saints, which means Judah still has uh, kings that are good kings that honor God, but not for very long, not for very long. And then verse 1, Ephraim feedeth on wind and followeth after the east wind. He daily increaseth lies and desolation, and they do make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried into Egypt. So the Lord, through the prophet Hosea, points out the example of Israel's unfaithfulness in its foreign relations as it tried in vain to squeeze out rewards and returns from Egypt and Assyria at the same time. They're wanting one to protect them from the other, and they think that they're making good uh, diplomatic relations with both. That, that's pretty much where we're at. They were trying to make, a, you know, they, they were giving to Egypt, you know, the oil as it were, in that respect. And, and then over to, with Assyria, you know, they were having other kinds of, of communication. Now, Egypt and Assyria, of course, were not uh, friends, as it were. So all of this that is happening in Israel is diplomatic. But man calls this diplomacy... The Lord calls it deceit. The Lord is calling it deceit. And the result of their rejection of God that led to their evil associations would be their emptiness of life. That's what he's saying is, okay, so now you're making all of these deceptive uh, practices with, with your, with your quote-unquote uh, uh, diplomatic uh, partners, uh, Egypt and Assyria. But what's it going to lead you to? Emptiness. In other words, where they thought that they were getting a lot of stuff from them and they were going to, you know, at least pro prosper a little bit more and keep prospering uh, as they were worshiping the idols that God detested, it was leading them to lose everything. And it would be their empty lives and unrestrained behavior that should stir them. Eventually, that should stir them to repentance. But the first thing that it does is it brings them into captivity. The first thing that it does is it brings destruction upon the land. And it brings destruction upon the place where they had already blasphemed God and turned it into a desolate area. The Israelites continually sought to satisfy the desires of their own hearts by feeding on the wind. That's that phrase that we see in verse 1. Ephraim feedeth on wind. Uh, they continually sought to, uh, to satisfy their desires of their heart by feeding on the wind. How many of you know that wind doesn't have any calories? I mean, you, you can have all the wind you want, but you know. You, at that point, you might be losing weight, but then what, what you're going to, I mean, you're going to die because you, you need some sustenance. And you need water and everything else. So by going along, in other words, what's, what's, what's being said here is that by going along with whatever the prevailing wind was blowing is the way that Israel was living. The wind's blowing this way. Let's go that way. Right, it's not blowing so much anymore this way. It's, now it's blowing this way. All right, let's go that way. 
back and forth, being tossed to and fro by every uh, wind of doctrine, by every wind of provision, by every wind of, of, uh, of promise. Diplomacy has a lot of promises. I think if you watch the news, you know, there's a lot of that going on in the political world today. So the point is that you try to feed on the wind and you'll find yourself weak and malnourished. And then it mentions the east wind because the east wind, by the way, is dry and it is hot and it is usually taking the life out of things as it passes over them. So the mention of the east wind is to say that that kind of wind is what is going to take even more from the people of Israel. Listen, whatever you try to grasp for outside of the Lord will only leave you dry. If you try to grasp for something, you might, you might have something temporarily, uh, you know, in the world. Uh, and, but, but, you know, you continue to follow outside of the Lord's will. It's going to leave you dry. Eventually, it's going to leave you lifeless. And, of course, you're going to become weak and malnourished spiritually. Israel, Israel was supposed to be a spiritual people. When Israel was all together with all of their tribes, the 13 tribes as it were, the Levites of course were the, the priestly tribe to be scattered throughout all of the other tribes. But you have all the tribes together, they were, a spirit, they were to be a spiritual people. There weren't any amendments uh, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, freedom of, of religion, as some people are now misquoting the, uh, the amendment that we have freedom of religion. Now they say it's freedom from religion. Well, no, 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 you, I mean, God is centered to Israel, even to this day. Although it's not as, as much as we like to see it be for all the people. Nonetheless, it is still to be a, God is still to be at the center of, of, of their existence. So Israel was looking at what Egypt and Assyria had, thinking that they'd be better off as they, but instead they were heading for destruction. So that is what we've been getting for the last 11 chapters. But consider this. Uh, this psalm, Psalm 37, and I, I mention it because I, 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 it was one of my daily readings this morning, Psalm 37, uh, and, I, and as I read that, I, I, I began to read the whole, I, it was one verse that, you know, my phone wakes me up with, read this verse, okay, you know, can't see it because I don't have my glasses on, but I read it, and then I just brought my Bible and just opened it up, and I read the whole psalm, well, I'm not going to give you the whole psalm right now, but but it really, it, it really stirred my heart to read it because it, it, it said so much, not just about what we're studying here in Hosea, but really about things that, that, um, that we all need. And this is the reason why I think reading the Psalms on a daily basis and the Proverbs are important for our daily walk. Anyway, it says here, fret not thyself because of evildoers. And the word fret not doesn't mean fear. A lot of people think that fret means fear, but it doesn't. The, the word fret in the Hebrew uh, is a word that means a burning, of, uh, a burning anger, actually. Uh, if we just uh, translate it very, very literally, it's a, it's a, it's a burning, uh, you know, fret not thyself because of evildoers. You know, being upset at, at what evildoers do, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. 
So the fretting is not, uh, is not really a, a good spiritual ad- attitude to have uh, because it, it, it tends to lean more toward uh, you know, the, the envious than it does toward uh, being righteous indignation against the things that are against God. So understand it from that perspective. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall be cut down, uh, they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Then comes this great encouragement and exhortation. Trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Now, that's a very simple thing in, in a way. It's simple to say, you know, just trust, believe, trust, uh, have faith in, and depend upon the Lord. Trust in the Lord, and, and then do good. So we are to live standing on the promises of God, standing on his word, and then we are to live out the word by doing good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself in the Lord. Now, I'm saying everything that these people in the northern kingdom of Israel never did. Because as soon as they left, as soon as they separated and went and built their their altars in in Bethel and Dan, the, the, the whole thing was idolatry. It was to worship other gods. It was to worship in a totally different manner. Even if they were saying, yeah, we're worshiping the God of Israel, but the God of Israel looks like a cow. No. They were always and completely in rebellion against God. So all of these things are the things that they never did. They never delighted themselves in the Lord. But the encouragement is, delight yourself in the Lord. And he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. I don't know about you, but when God changes our hearts, the desires of our hearts are much different than they were before we came to Christ. I don't, I, don't, I don't desire the things of this world as much as I desire what God wants. And it's always been, for, for, at least for me, that I, I see you know, this passage, delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. I said, well, praise the Lord. The Lord, tell me what your desire is, and that's all I want. Because that's then my desire. God's will be done. That God's love will shine forth in my life and in, the, in, in your lives. And then verse 5 says, commit thy way unto the Lord. Which means to roll your whole life onto God. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light. In other words, he will cause you as believers in Christ, as believers in God, as believers in the God of Israel. He will cause you to shine. And cause your righteousness to shine as light and your judgment as the noonday. Now Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 in the New Testament, verses 17 to 20, he says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. In the vanity of their mind. Having having the understanding dark and being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. Now I read this here because I want you to realize that everything that he mentions to the church, he says, don't do this. Don't walk as the other Gentiles walk. He's telling the church that. 
Don't be like them. You take a look back at, uh, at, at, uh, at the ten tribes of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, and that's all they did. They walked like the Gentiles. They wanted to be like the Gentiles. They wanted to worship like the Gentiles. They wanted to prosper like they felt the Gentiles were prospering. But you have not so learned Christ, Paul says. So it is the Lord himself who alone can satisfy the desires and the longings of our heart. But they didn't want what God had. Only he can deliver us from an empty, meaningless, unsatisfying, and wearisome life. If you're still in Ephesians, go to chapter 3. And look at verses 17 through 19 where it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. I mean, all the dimensions of this life that we are familiar with. All the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, the, the, the fullness of, of the dimensions of, of the life in which we live. That we are to comprehend with all the saints what those things are and to know the love of Christ. Which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. God wants us to be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, when he gives us gifts, when he gives us everything that we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ, when he gives us these things, it doesn't say batteries not included. He gives us everything that we need. When he gives us the spirit of God, he gives us our gifts that each one of us is to, is to have for the sake of the body of Christ. He gives, it to him, he gives them to us fully. It's not like these places where you see sometimes, you know, I, I remember seeing this about 40 years ago, you know, but nowadays you can even see it on, 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 uh, on YouTube, you know, where, where you know, these people are going around telling you, okay, we, we want you to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit with, with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And then, so they, they bring you in and they say, but you know what, we're going to help you. We're going to help you. What do you mean you're going to help them? If, if the Lord is going to give you the gift, you're going, to have a, you're going to have the gift. You don't need anybody. Okay, now say da, 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 da. What? You can't help somebody out with that. A gift is a gift. Can you read Acts chapter 2 and think, you know, here they are. They're in the, the upper room waiting. And then, you know, there's a rushing mighty wind that comes into that upper room that day. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody stands up. And then Peter says, you know, let, okay, you know what? We need a little help here. Uh, let's all start saying da, 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 da. No way, man. They, they, I mean, the Spirit of God came into that place and they all began to praise God in other tongues and people outside were confirming it by saying, hey, these guys are speaking my language and they're giving praise unto God. He wants us to have the fullness. But he gives it. And I don't know why people do that kind of stuff. I mean, it is, I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, the Lord finishes. I, I got to go on because I just realized we could have a two-parter here, but I better not. So the Lord finishes speaking to Israel for a moment. And then he begins to speak briefly to the southern kingdom of Judah. And one thing of importance that we need to know is that the Lord does not hold I'm sorry, let me go back. The Lord does hold us accountable. 
what we need to understand is that the Lord does hold us accountable for the things that we know. He holds us accountable for the things that we know and what we do with those things. He will hold us accountable for what you know. But don't get the idea that says, well, maybe the less I know, the better. No. <laughs> he wants you to grow in, his, in a relationship with him. He wants you to grow in fellowship with him. In his, he wants to have koinonia with you. So grow. So he holds us accountable for the things that we know and what we do with those things. The actions that we take as well as the life that we live. Don't forget what Jesus said uh, in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, as he was giving a, a parable. He, he said, For unto whomever, or whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask more. Let's not forget, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. And much has been given to us as we study the word. But you know, we shouldn't fear that. We should thank the Lord for that. We should thank the Lord for what he's given to us. Because I can tell you this, when you were in school and you started in first grade, how many of you went to first grade? Did anybody not go to first grade? Everybody here first grade? Any first graders here right now? See, the fact of the matter is that if you go to school today and you say, you know, I never passed out of first grade, they're going to put you in a little chair that, won't, that you won't fit in. You, are, you can't wait to get to you know, the second grade because then you have a bigger desk. You definitely can't wait to get to third grade, you know. And then we, you know, we all had that mentality where we said, well, you know, I'm going to go to school, but man, I'm tired. I don't like school, you know. You don't like school, you're not going to get a job. You don't like school, you, you know, your, your, your future is hanging here. So start liking something about it, you know, because it's going to help you along the way. But the fact is, none of us stayed in first grade. I like it here. I like first grade. I like the ABCs. I like one, two, three. I like these things, right? We come to Christ. There are those that, you know, like the ABCs. You read the book of Hebrews, and it says some of you need to start growing. Get out of that milk. You need to get into meat. God will take care of us. God will provide for us. He'll strengthen us. But you've got to get out of that first grade chair. Because to whom much is given, much is required. So he points out to Judah in verses 2 through 6. The Lord hath also controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. Now notice it says punish Jacob. Again, because Jacob is the foundation for all the tribes. And both tribes or, or both nations are going to, uh, you know, the southern and northern kingdoms are going to fall. According to his doings, will he recompense him? He took his brother by the heel in the womb, speaking of Jacob taking Esau's heel, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, which, is, which means the house of God, and there he spake with us. Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his, the Lord is his memorial. Therefore, turn thou to thy God. In effect, he's saying, turn back to your God. Keep mercy and judgment and wait on, on, on thy God continually. So the Lord used Jacob as an illustration of a man who tried to do it all on his own. And Jacob would be the first one to say, yeah, that was me. Do everything on my own. Who tried to do it without God. 
In the womb, Jacob wrestled with his twin brother Esau, and as Esau was being born, Jacob grabbed the hole of his heel, and thus he was given the name Yaakov, which means supplanter. In effect, some people call him heel catcher. And all of his life, he tried to get his way by supplanting. Do you know what it means to supplant? It means to unseat someone. So he was unseating himself over others. He was unseating others over them by, by cheating, by dishonesty, and by being a wheeler dealer just to get his way. And, and you know, the Lord taught him a, a major lesson when he went over to Laban's house, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and then he, he, he met his match with Laban. Laban was pretty good at, it, at that kind of stuff too. Laban was a bigger de a wheeler dealer. They met his match. So Jacob stole Esau's birthright right out from under him, we know. And then later on, of course, he stole his blessing and his inheritance. So is it any wonder that his own brother Esau wanted to kill him? But his struggle was not so much with his brother Esau as it was with God. His struggle was much more with God. Because throughout that time that he spent at his uncle Laban's house and after falling in love with Rachel and spending 20 years working for Laban, all because he loved Rachel, and we'll see that also in the text, he desired to return home with his wives, with his concubines, his children, and all his livestock. And while heading home, he hears news that Esau, and along with 400 men, is coming to meet them. So that night, Jacob wrestled with God. That night, he wrestled with God, fighting all night, being crippled by the Lord, who dislocated Jacob's hip. He then changed Jacob's name from supplanter, which can in effect mean self-governed, to Israel, Israel, which means governed by God. From self-governed to governed by God. So his name reflected the change of his character. And oftentimes the Lord has to break us. He has to break us of our self-will so we too will depend upon him. Because that's his desire. And we shouldn't fight it, but we should submit to it. Submitting to the desires of God for us. For Jacob, his encounter with Esau would turn out for good. His brother didn't kill him <laughs> or destroy him. In fact, the Lord protected him. In Genesis 35, verses 1 through 3, it says, And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God. That appeared unto thee <clears throat> when thou fleddest from the face of Esau, thy brother. And then Jacob said unto his household, and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods. Now, now here again, listen to this. He's, he's saying to his own household, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean. And change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, 
who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. The Lord had called Jacob back to Bethel, the house of God, the place where Jacob encountered God in the first place. And Jacob realized to do that, he needed, a, he needed to purge the old life. He needed to purge the old life and to get rid of the idols that were holding his relationship with God back. And you know, that's a great lesson for all of us as well. To purge out the old. Matter of fact, Paul gives us a lesson of that in, in 1 Corinthians 5. He's been talking about a very serious situation that was taking place in the church of Corinth at the time. And the people actually were kind of like being proud of it or arrogant. But it, it was a, a, a terrible sexual sin that, that was taking place in, in, in Corinth. Some young man was having an, you know, a, a relation with, with his stepmother. That's really what it was. So, in, in effect, through this whole passage here, you know, he says, Paul says, purge out, therefore, the old leaven, verse 7, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We have to change. We have, we have to change completely. Remember that Jacob told him, he said, get, get rid of those. Ah! Timing was not good on that one. Get, get rid of those um, idols. You know, get rid of all of those things. And then change your garments. When we came to Christ, our garments were changed for us. The garments of the old man were taken and we were given new garments and the garment that was given to us was the righteousness of Christ. How are we doing with that? Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2 speaking to his, his son in the faith verses 19 through 21. He says, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Aren't you glad that God knows who you are? I think, I think it is essential for us to realize the importance of that because when you read in the, Psalm, in the Sermon on the Mount, or that message that Jesus gave at the Mount, that he spoke about those that, that would, that, that would uh, say, Lord, Lord, but not, but not do the things that he says, and he said, eventually of them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. So it's a good thing if God knows you and calls you by name. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some, honor, some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet or fit for the master's use, 
prepared unto every good work. And I think that that would be a wonderful prayer for us every day is, Lord, make us fit for your use. Make us fit today for your use. You who are our master, you who are our God and our Lord, make us fit for this day, for this new day, so that we may be prepared unto every good work. I, I mean, none of us wake up wanting to do bad works. But sometimes if we don't keep our focus and, and, and bring our focus unto the Lord, we'll drift. And the cares of the day will take over. And we'll find ourselves not where God wants us to be. Therefore, unprepared unto every good work. So I would say that the prayer of our heart should be, Lord, make me fit today for your use. For your use. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. But Christ being come, a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of his building, of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the clean, or the unclean, I should say, sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we can either be doing dead works or we can be doing good works. Dead works are just, you know, just going, doing the same old thing, same old, same old, you know. Uh, Jesus would speak of the Pharisees, you know, that they would go out and they would put on their phylacteries, their boxes, and, and they would pray out in, in the public so people could give them praise, you know. Uh, they, would, uh, they would boast about whatever, whatever uh, alms that they would give to the poor, you know, but they wanted to be seen doing it. And Jesus said, you know, don't, don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. I mean, you know, let's just, just do it. Just do the good work. That's serving the living God. Not for man's applause. It is only by the Lord's help that his people can return. Can return to him. We're to submit to his leading. To get rid of those things that are hindering our relationship with him. That's what he's saying to Israel. Submit to my leading, get rid of those things that are hindering your relationship with me, and come back to me. We're, we, you know, we are also, we're, we're also to show mercy to others and treat others fairly, and as always, to do what is right. But Israel stopped doing that. So as people return to God, he will speak to them as they wait upon him. And that's all he wanted to do. If they would return to him, he'd speak to them and wait, and they would wait upon him. And then we get back to chapter 12, verse 7, where he speaks of Ephraim again. He says, he is a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loveth to oppress. And Ephraim said, yet I am become rich. I have found me out of out substance. In all my labors they shall find none iniquity in me that were sin. He's, 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 he's just rationalizing. He's trying, to, he's, he's, he's trying to make himself feel good about you know, what he's doing. Sin has a way of doing that to people. I'm not that bad. My sin is not that awful. In fact, 
I'm not going to call it sin. Because I think I'm doing something all right. We're good. So look at how they rationalized in their own minds. Through deception, they made a profit and they boasted about what they had done. This is something that should infuriate all of us. People taking advantage of others to make a profit. They use flattering words, slither as smoothly as a snake, deceiving people out of their hard-earned money, and in many cases, their life savings. That's not only happening on, in, 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 uh, uh, in the business world, that's happening in the church, of all places. And yet the Lord wants us to be honest at reflecting His character. As believers, we need to be careful we don't follow down that path of deception and then, like Israel, try to cover it up. Because that's what Ephraim was doing. And what was he doing? False balances. Again, you go back to uh, verse 7. He is a merchant of the balances of deceit. Well, if you read in Leviticus 19, verse 36, it says, just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin shall you have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, you need to be just with your balances. In other words, what they used to use was bags of, of a certain weight to say that this is how we're, we're going to put them on these scales. And, and, and when people want to buy that kind, that, that much this is how much they will pay when they finally have enough. But you know what they used to do was say, okay, this is that balance. And then they would sneak up a, a lighter bag and give them less for the same amount. That's cheating your people. And they not only did it in the marketplace, they did it sometimes in the temple or in the tabernacle. Proverbs 11 verse 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. That we are fair with people. We don't, you know, we're not out here to, you know, and I'll tell you what, man, people are just, they're really good at wanting to, you know, take care of their own overhead and stuff. They could care about your underhead. They care about their overhead. They care about their bottom line. That's all they care about. So notice how the Lord tried to get his people's attention by sending them prophets and by using illustrations and still they shut their ears to the things of God. Go back to Hosea 12, 9. And I that am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt will yet make thee to dwell in tabernacles as, as in the days of the solemn feast. I have also spoken by the prophets and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. He said, man, I've sent all of these things and these people to you. But the Lord was not going to overlook Israel's disobedience, their rebellion, and their ingratitude. The very God that guided this nation from the time of their captivity in Egypt to their entrance into the promised land would, as part of his coming judgment, return Israel to the wilderness experience and cause her to live in tents while in exile. That's what he was saying to them. You're going to go back into tents. You're going to go back into that kind of living when I had already brought you out into a place where you could live in houses that I have given you and eat the food that I have provided for you. And if you acknowledge that, then I would bless you even more. 
But in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11, listen, it says, Thus saith the Lord, After this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. By the way, he's also going to speak about Israel in a moment. But he says, This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart and walk after other gods, to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as this girdle, which is good for nothing, a girl that he was told to, to, to make and to put on. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear. But his condemnation of Israel was not his last word to the people. It was not his last word. His last word was an appeal for the people to turn back to him. Verse 11, is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are vanity. They sacrifice bullocks in Gilgal. Yea, their altars are, are as heaps in the furrows of the fields. And Jacob fled into the country of Syria, and Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. And by a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet was he preserved. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly, and therefore shall he leave his blood upon him, and his reproach shall his Lord return unto him. It's interesting that there in verse 11, the Lord doesn't ask the question, is there iniquity in Gilead, as if the answer was doubtful, but actually to strengthen the affirmation. They are nothing but iniquity. They are nothing but iniquity. Gilead and Gilgal mentioned in this prophecy in chapters 4, 6, and 9 epitomize the wickedness and the hypocrisy of the nation as a whole. The Lord's conclusion was this then. The people's wickedness, their vanity, their idolatry had made their worship centers worthless in God's sight. So from the very beginning, as I mentioned uh, earlier today, Dan and, 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 uh, uh, Dan and Bethel, the lower part of the northern kingdom, and Dan, the, north, the higher part of the upper part, as soon as they went to their places, they were already in idolatry. They hadn't gone there to worship the God of Israel. They had gone there to worship their own gods. So their wickedness, their vanity, their adultery, they, 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 I mean, they just made them worthless. They were worthless. The place where we worship should not become a worthless place. Because what matters is this, the heart. That's where you worship. That's where you praise God from. Not in some man-made altar, although at times God would have been to make them for the sake of sacrifice. Nowadays we make great cathedrals and large places, not to God's glory, but to man's glory. And furthermore, their sins were going to bring utter devastation to those centers of worship. The clear implication is that the entire nation would be utterly destroyed. He is very clear in those last few verses of this chapter. 
that those places were going to be wiped out. In verses 12 and 13 of our text, the Lord mentions the matter of Jacob's wife. The point the Lord was making here, as we read, let's, uh, did we get to it yet? Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, verses, uh, verse 12. So the Lord is pointing out that uh, what he was, the point he was making was that in spite of all of his craftiness, in other words, Jacob's craftiness, that there was one thing that rang true in Jacob's life. And again, he mentions Jacob. Remember, Jacob becomes Israel, but sometimes he's called Jacob again. But there's one thing that rang true in his life, and that was that, his lo- that he had a love for Rachel. He had a love for Rachel. His love continued no, uh, it contained no cheap, uh, no cheap alloy, only the purest gold. That was the kind of love that he had for Rachel. And this would ring true, though, as well, for Hosea and his love for Gomer and especially God's love for Israel. And God's love for Israel, I think we've read this before, but I think it's worth reading again. But I want to add verses 1 and 2 to Jeremiah 31, verses 1 through 3. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. And, And again, notice what he's saying. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. This is a far uh, fulfillment of prophecy. Not a near fulfillment, a far fulfillment. And they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord has appointed... I'm sorry, the Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Now, how, how long is everlasting? Well, it's, it's, it's eternal. And therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. But God's love was not given at the expense of the law. And that's what verse 14 is telling us. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly, therefore shall he leave his blood upon him, and his reproach shall his Lord return unto him. God's love was not given at the expense of the law. The Lord, through Hosea, was saying, let Israel beware. Let Israel beware. The very blood she had shed was about to be required of her. Many innocent children had been sacrificed to the vile and the vicious gods of Canaan. Not one drop of their blood or one moment of their agony had been overlooked by God. His long account with Israel was about to be paid in full. Judgment was coming to Israel. But even in the midst of this inevitable storm, the Lord's unfailing and unchanging love would shine as a promised rainbow after an intense tempest. I want to close with with Naum, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Naum is one of the minor prophets. Nahum, sometimes it's pronounced, but it's Naum.
chapter 1, verse 3. Very simply, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He was slow to anger with Israel. How many years had he sent prophets? How many years had he sent all of the things that he needed to to awaken them and open their eyes, but they would not see, they would not hear, they would not listen. And so he would not acquit them, but he has his way. He has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, especially as it pertains to his people. What is that way? The Lord thy God in the midst of thee. He's not far from you. He's not far from us. And in keeping his promise, he says, I, I, I'll never forsake you. I will be with you always. There are times when we sense the withdrawing of his presence, but that doesn't mean that he's not near. It just means he's trying to get us to wake up. and turn back to him and say, Lord, I surrender. I surrender.